0: This week on Dig Me Out. And if you tolerate this, then your children will be next. And if you tolerate this, then your children will be next, will be next, will be next, will be next. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minici.
1: Jay, this week we're doing one of the rarest of rare things for this podcast. We're reviewing a second album by a band. We've only done this a few times.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think this um, is it the second time we've done it. Well, I think we'll have to do this more often.
1: It's difficult because then you have to factor in like new records. Like we did, uh, you know, we did Super Drag and then later, well, we didn't really review the Lisa of Memory. We just went track by track through it. I was going to yeah. say the same thing for Failure. We talked about the Failure record, and then we went track by track through it. I guess we reviewed... You know, the We kind of
2: did two two Paw records. Yeah,
1: two Paw records, although the second one was an interview. Yep. And uh, there might be one or two that we're missing, but I think that that's pretty much it. Does Guns N' Roses count as one or two? We did both <laughs> records. It was all
2: one episode. Okay.
1: So this week, thanks to one of our Patreon patrons, we're revisiting... Another Manic Street Preachers record. Previously, we did the Holy Bible. Andy Darer joined us for that particular episode. That was years ago. That was probably, I'm going to say, season four when we did that. Maybe I have to check this, check the notes on that. But let me
2: pull up our handy dandy website and look that up for you. Why don't
1: you do that for me, Jay? And uh, joining us this week to unveil his selection, Peter Matheson. Welcome, Peter.
3: Hi, guys. Delighted to be here.
1: So, which Manic Street Preachers record did you pick for us to check out, and why'd you do it?
3: Uh, So, I went for This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours, their 1998 record, their their fifth album overall. Partly, I was thinking, well, 1998 is the 20th anniversary of this record. So, that was certainly kind of one factor. Uh, I knew you guys uh, were fans of the band, Coming at this, I guess, from a British perspective, I probably have a slightly different experience with this album than, than you guys. Uh, I mean, in the UK, this was a, a number one album.
0: Mm-hmm. It was a
3: big deal back in back in the day. And, you know, it's always been uh, personally one of my favorites. I think if you were to poll Mannix fans and, you know, get a... Uh, you know, which is the fan's favorite, etc. I don't, I suspect it probably wouldn't feature in the top half, but I've got a lot of time for this record and I've got a lot of lasting affection for it. So I thought it'd be a good one to cover.
1: Cool. Jay, what's our, what's the data tell us? When did we...
2: <laughs> the is saying it was season four, episode 182. There you
1: go, season four. I called it. Now, Jay, you were the person that introduced me to the Manx Street Preachers. Do you know that? Am I? Yeah.
2: I thought you introduced me.
1: No, it was Everything Must Go. How did I do that? Okay. Uh, You picked that record up at some point. Yeah. And I don't think it was when it came out. I want to say it was after... Well,
2: in the U.S., it's never when it comes out because all their records are released late here.
1: Right. Although in this case, Jay, I actually pulled my CD because I have this record on CD. And it says on the back, 1998 Sony Music Entertainment... Virgin Records America. So this actually did come out in the U.S. in 1998. Now, the original U.K. release is July, I believe, of 1998. I don't know that it mm-hmm. came out the same time. Or sorry, September. September 14th, 1998 is when this came out. So this might have come out in the you know fall-winter in, in the U.S. I don't remember yeah. if it came out exactly the same time. Um, well, I,
2: th- I think because it a Design for Life was so big that this... Yeah, I do remember this record being promoted here, heavily and re- being released on time. But this might be the one of the few. Yeah. Right? Well, e- even after this,
1: "Know Your Enemy" came out here, and then I don't think "Lifeblood" was actually released here because, like, if you go to Spotify, mm-hmm. um, I don't think you can listen to to "Lifeblood" in the U.S. I have to. I'll go to double- I know there's at least one record of theirs. It might be. Yeah so you you
3: got, you. You, I actually listened to Lifeblood on Spotify the other day, guys. So, um, is it Know Your Enemy? Know, e- okay. know, your enemy is, know Your Enemy is not on Spotify. Gotcha. Okay, I know. reversed. Um, yeah. It's so, not on
2: Apple Music either, so.
3: Yeah. So I might say that's a good thing.
1: <laughs> well, we'll talk about that, because that's this is an interesting period of the band. Now, Jay, Jay and I are obviously fans of the band. Uh, we've talked about them not only in the previous review, but they've come up in various... Other reviews for influences and things that sound similar and and that sort of stuff. So approaching this record, this isn't a new discovery. We're not coming into this completely fresh. Uh, What we're probably doing is coming in fresh in terms of listening to the record all the way through. I don't think I've listened to the album, all 13 tracks in a row, as much as I did this week in the last... 15 16, 17 years I tend out I have like a playlist and when I, an album comes out I pick my favorite songs, put it in the playlist and that's how I end up listening to things I don't know if you're the same way Jay or not but uh, listening to whole records is not especially older ones that I'm already familiar with. I don't do that very often anymore
2: Yeah I'll um, I'll either do playlists or random and then what but when I hit a record that or a song that I really you know pulls me back in, I'll go pull the record out occasionally and go through the whole thing again so but it's not uh, my normal listening habit to go right. to just pick a record up and listen to it
1: i mentioned that this was a patreon pick by peter i want to mention we have a new patreon pledge that's ryan bird joined us at the one dollar level thank you ryan for joining us you're going to have an opportunity very soon if not already to vote in our february poll there'll be four albums up at the beginning or at the end of january actually you vote for our one of our february reviews four albums that i'm play i'm i'm guessing that are not going to get picked for for patreon pledgers to uh to pick themselves i tried to pick up more obscure stuff that people probably either forgot about or maybe never even heard of so that will be probably out right now for you to vote on uh based on when we're recording this podcast so i, I do want to mention we got some feedback and this is Peter, based on your comments about people who are Manic Street Preacher fans and what they think of this record, I think some of these are going to fall in line with uh, what you were thinking. Darren Leach said, I'm a huge Manic's fan, but this album over the years rarely gets listened to. Many tracks were too overplayed, plus the album sounds too commercial, which is very un-Manic Street Preacher's like. It's the first album with no input from Richie, which I feel shows... They've always been a strong album track band, but there are many duds on this album. From track six onwards, it falls away quickly. Now we should explain for people who maybe are not familiar with the Mannix. Um, when he says Richie, Richie Edwards was an original member of the band. There were four piece when they formed. He contributed to the first four records as a lyricist, and in what was it, 1994? Or 1995. F- 1995, he disappeared. And so some of the lyrics that he had, that everybody were already working on or, or that he had left were used for the following record, which is Everything Must Go. But then this is the first record in which Nikki Wire, the bassist, wrote all of the lyrics. He was the co-writer on previous records, but this is all of his own. Now, what's interesting is that Uh, He did not write any music on this record. All of the music is James Dean Branfield, the guitar player and lead singer, and Sean Moore, the drummer, which I think that that has not stayed the same. I think Nikki's added some more input on songwriting. At least that's what Know Your Enemy sounds like. (laughs) Um So speaking of, Jason Pan says, Discovered the preachers around the Know Your Enemy era, and this is my pre-Spotify backtracking. The This Is My Truth and Everything Must Go era never really touched in my discovery process, so I'm not sure I've ever listened to this album end-to-end, though I definitely have memories of appreciating the singles and have the If You Tolerate Tolerate This single, which has a great B-side on it called Montana Autumn 78. I remember all the B-sides being... Really good because I bought all those singles back in the day when I was an obsessive fan. Um, so I have, I think I have like a, a CD, CD, uh, a burned CD full of all of the B sides from this record and Everything Must Go, including all those like remixes that were done for dance singles and whatnot. Darren Svetsen says discovered the band around the Everything Must Go era, which I ordered from Columbia House on a whim and enjoyed it quite a bit. Ordered this one on an import. And other than the lead single, can't remember a single thing about it. Curious to hear if you think it's worthy or if it's as forgettable as I'm thinking it is. And then uh, Keith Sawyer says, I have a t-shirt from this album declaring, if you tolerate this, your children will be next, which is great to wear to protests, as most people here in the U.S. don't associate that slogan with a hit song. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the most memorable thing about the album for me. I prefer my manics... From the earlier glam era of the band, this one has very little flavor. They started to get some personality back on the uneven next one, Know Your Enemy. It's an interesting perspective. So those are our comments from our Patreons. You can go to patreon.com forward slash digmeout to join us, as Ryan did, and uh, contribute comments, and we'll talk about them on the show. And let's get into this record. I'm really excited to talk about this record because it's... You know, it's a band that I love. It's a band that Jay loves. We don't often delve deep into catalogs of bands that we are, you know, big fans of. We get to them here and there occasionally. We usually we're reviewing stuff we don't know, uh, especially when it's picked up by our our patrons. So, Jay, let me ask you revisiting this record. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask you about one thing you liked. I'm going to ask you one thing that you liked then. And you listen to it now, and you go, "Yep, that really clicks with me." That's that's something that like I I enjoyed it then. I maybe even enjoy it more now, but it still works for me.
2: I think I would go with this melancholy songwriter era that that they moved into at this point, which um, I think at the time was was a little bit challenging for me, and in, in that I was trying to reconcile. Some of the hard, harder rock stuff that they had done, and even the Mobits on here where they get big and fuzzy. And then matching that to almost this new they they had almost become like a folk band in some ways. Um, like a working-class lyrics and at times even uh light rock kind of sounds. There's some snarl here, there's some teeth, you know. It obviously lyrically it's it bites. Um, but I think a lot of the down tempos and just overall mood of this record is pretty depressing. Uh, And I think in hindsight, uh, they were probably very depressed. I mean, I think it comes through with, uh, when you listen to, to, to this and, um, everything must go. Uh, I think it's pretty clear mentally where they were at in that part of their life. So, Those things did connect with me then. I think it was it was different for me. It's probably if I was going to listen to Britpop, this would be the closest I would get to it. And the majority of that material still holds up for me now. You know, I think songwriting from a songwriting standpoint, it's it's really strong lyrically. It's uh, incredibly strong. And I think this this record starts to be. You still have those unique kind of phrases. Um, that that I, that I always associate with with um with them with in the way that James Gene Bradfield sings, but because the lyrics are coming with the music and it's fitting together a little bit better now in terms of, you know, Nikki's writing the lyrics and they're probably working with them a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you you lose some of that that awkwardness that is sometimes really unique and I love in terms of how you would take Richie's vocal li- our lyrics and try to cram them into a song. I think this record you start to hear. Things smooth out a bit more yeah that way which can be which can be good and bad but um yeah overall the songwriting to me still really holds up
0: yeah, to its future, the night's history, Tonight's history.
1: the one thing that I think listening to this now versus then that I have grown to appreciate is that this band is willing to adjust their sound dramatically from record to record. And I don't mean like they'll make a stoner rock record and then they'll make a kraut rock record and then they'll make a disco record. I mean, they're willing to like take a concept of like, we're going to make a melancholy introspective record And we're going to go, you know, 90% of the way. Yeah, you still have You Stole the Sun from My Heart and Tsunami, which are not quite those sorts of songs. But I can, like, now when I listen to this, in comparison to, say, an album like Rewind the Film, it makes sense. Like, up until, you know, probably that record came out, this was the anomaly. This was the down-tempo, sort of dark... Blood, uh, what's the record I'm thinking of Lifeblood kind of gets there in some respects but they're also playing with like a lot of like synth stuff and just a different sort of production take mm. uh, technique on that record and yeah. but when you listen to that and then you listen to you know they're they're willing to go for an entire concept to a record whether it's the abrasiveness of Journal for Plague Lovers or the sort of attempts at writing big stadium anthems on postcards to a young man, and, and um, send away the tigers. And there's these big overarching ideas that they go into with these records. And I don't know if they happen organically, or if they're, like they're working on these songs and they're like, "Hey, these all kind of fit together," and this sort of concept. Or if they, you know, go into the writing process when Nikki's sitting down and. and Yeah, when Nicky's sitting down with James and he's like, I want to do a record that's, you know, this. I don't know how that works with them, but I, I do think that they're really good at writing cohesive records in terms of a sonic palette. And this, to me, this is like kind of the first one that, it be, it's really obvious like they clearly like you said there's a depression throughout this whole record and in the mm-hmm. throughout all the lyrics you can hear them dealing with the fact that they don't have Richie contributing anymore both in terms of just bluntness and then also in terms of some sly references to various things whether it's ready for drowning or Black Dog on My Shoulder, which I believe is a reference. Black Dog on My Shoulder is a reference to depression itself. It's not just about having a dog on your shoulder. Um, <laughs> if, am I right about that, Peter? I think that's like British yep, slang.
3: You, 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 certainly are. you certainly are, yeah. It is. There's a black dog on my shoulder again
0: Licking my neck and saying she's my friend solitude the one thing that I really miss yes my life is a compromise there's a black dog on my shoulder again I'm playing with this but it's gone
1: One thing I really appreciated listening back to this record is that now in the overall context of their catalog, it, it makes more sense. Whereas when it came out, I think I was a little perplexed, perplexed by it. And I really gravitated towards the singles. You know, if you tolerate this and you stole the sun from my heart, those songs. But I think I didn't really get the back half of the record as maybe as well as I do now. Um, so, Peter, compare your thoughts to uh, did you love this record when it come, when it came out? Uh, did you, were you confused coming off of uh, everything must go that this was the direction they were going in or. Uh, yeah. you you instantly I think, on board.
3: I, I think I recognize a bit of my own reaction in, in, in both of your comments. Um, I mean, you know, around this time, you know, I kind of become a, a huge fan of the band really after everything must go. And, I'd kind of spent the intervening couple of years um, collecting CD singles and and kind of that kind of stuff and and you know uh, there's a lot of great B sides in the Mannix catalog to, to mm-hmm. discover. So you know, and I was 24 at the time. So the kind of whole kind of you know, most town junk, we live in urban hell, we destroy rock and roll. That kind of that kind of nihilism probably meant more to me in 1998 than it does now. So, you know, there was part of me, I think, that kind of recognized that that era of the band was quite clearly over, um, it was never coming back, and that this was, you know, very much a new chapter. But at the same time, I really, really enjoyed the record. I think when it, when it came out in, in 98, I certainly wasn't disappointed in it. I, you know, it certainly wasn't one of these records that, you know, I think one that springs to mind is Up by R.E.M., that came out that that year, which I just couldn't, I couldn't get at the time, but came back to a couple of years ago. Um, This stayed in pretty constant rotation for me. So, so yeah, so I was, uh, you know, I really, really liked it. And, you know, this is, you know, in the UK context, as I say, you know, this was like a number one record. It was number one for three weeks. And, you know, I, I tend to be one of these people, I guess, that if, if everybody likes your favorite band, they're no longer your favorite band. So, you know, the fact that I didn't put me off, I think also kind of says something. So, yeah. So, no, on, on the whole, I was, uh, I was enjoying this record when it came, when it came out.
1: I, th- I think you might be the same age then, like, as Jana, I, because I think I, I'm pretty sure I was 24 when this record came out as well. I'm trying to do the math in my head. I was born in 74, so I would have, that's right, because 98 would have been 24. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, it certainly does. Okay.
1: So and, yeah. And that I didn't really think about it, but that was the year I graduated from college. So it was like moving from a very, you know, distinct point in my life to a new chapter and having the band make a a a dramatic turn was, you know, in retrospect happening at the same time I was also making a big turn. So that's, that's an interesting parallel that I don't th- I would not have recognized at the time. I would just been like, I picked up a new record and that's all I would have thought it thought of it as. And it's, you know, it's weird because I did like the record and I listened to it all the time, but I've always gravitated in the same way that Keith has towards stuff like uh, Holy Bible and generation terrorists and journal album and futurology. You know, I tend to like the louder and more aggressive, more confrontational manics, the masses against the classes, that kind of stuff. But I do have like they're one of the few bands, and I don't know if you're like this, Jay, where even the albums that I don't love, I still like a lot of them. Like there are bands that yeah. I really like, and they have an album or two in their catalog that I can't listen to. Like it just does not work for me at all. But like, even though Know Your Enemy is kind of a a mishmash of so much stuff going on. I still really like a lot of that record. I just wish it was produced a little bit differently, in some respects.
2: You guys are making me need to go back and listen to that. I don't, it's been a while. I don't remember uh, they have it being that bad. It's not it very it's, well could be, but it's been a long time since I listened to it.
1: I, a lot of it is the production where they like overdrove all, all like the entire mix and like uh, the drums are distorted and gotcha. I just remember, I remember the teaser for that record was they on their website before the record came out they put out a like ten second sample of a guitar solo, which was the the guitar yeah. solo for intervenus intravenous agnostic, yeah, which is a kick ass guitar solo, yeah, and you're like, oh, this record's gonna slay. This is like. <laughs> This is gonna be like, you know, Holy Bible era, and then the you hear like, found that soul, and you're like, okay, that's pretty cool, and then, so why so sad and Ocean Spray? And you're like, mm, these are okay. Well, these are different. I was not expecting this, and then you hear like Wattsville Blues and Miss Europa Disco Dancer. Like, <laughs> okay, yeah, let, I forgot let, that one.
3: Yeah, let let Robson sing.
1: Yeah, and Baby Elyon yeah there's just Uh, some there's a few things on that record that just kind of don't work that and that's that to me is like the the record where it it sort of goes off the rails for me uh for them that's the only one really where i kind of like will ignore like half at least half the record because it seemed like after that, they found a focus for every record going forward.
2: Yeah, I think with this record, this is my truth, and even, I guess, uh, I always lump this together with, um, like I said before, um, Everything Must Go, Yeah. because they, this is, uh, particularly this one, I think it's it's even more pronounced, is they're stripping everything down. Yeah. Like, you know, they came out as a band that, at least from what we can see, we, we didn't witness it firsthand, but, you know were very loud and in your face and uh had had a lot to say had, did a lot of guitar work, you know heavy guitar work lyrically there was a lot going on image wise there was a lot going on and musically there was a lot going on and this is this record in particular is very stripped back almost to you know almost a a, minima, a minimalism even with like, the the album cover you know this is the first cover where they start going with this you know all caps, Helvetica, you know, uh super flat color, sterile kind of look. They're all wearing like white linen. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> right. Like, you know what I mean, they're just stripping everything away. And you hear it musically too. I mean, you know, a lot of these songs are constructed around guitar effects instead of like heavy guitar parts, you know. So he'll pick a delay part or some weird sound. And a lot of the verse will just be you know, that guitar part and and more just bass and drum carrying it. Um, And it really pulls you into the the lyrics and the vocals. So I felt like this, now going back, I understand this record, I think, better than I did at the time um, in that this very much felt like them reinventing themselves and getting rid of all of the trappings that they had early in their career and were entering a middle part of their career where they were... You know, kind of trying to start with a clean slate.
1: thought of it this was the first record where they really got into keyboard stuff you know with piano on you're tender and you're tired or organ on ready for drowning i mean there is a, a concerted effort to move away from loud guitars you know everything must go still has its share of loud guitar songs even though there are you know it's a lot cleaner or more subdued compared to holy bible and the and the previous records but this is the first record where they're like fully embracing moving away from guitars at least loud guitars and like you said Jay there's you know like if you tolerate this is really just like a four chord acoustic song but then they throw in that like weird effect to start the song that carries through it that kind of like drives a lot of the song and there's there's a number of songs like that even there's loops on this song with um, I'm not working and stuff. So just curious as to your reaction to hearing them playing in these different sounds that I'm sure that some Mannix fans thought that was sacrilegious for them to be turning the guitars down and turning up a Hammond B3 organ.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if you look on the liner notes, uh, I mean, there's a lot of additional musicians on this record. And then if you kind of compare it with everything must go, there's, there's certainly people playing on that record
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, who who are not Nicky Warren, Sean Moore or James Dean Bradfield, but, but they're not individually credited. But but I imagine on this record, the, the kind of presence of these, you know, if these, these these external players is certainly greater. I think an element of that was probably the budget they had, which I suspect at that point in their careers was bigger than anything that they had previously had when they went to make a record just on, on the basis of the, the success of, of the previous album. But, you know, to me, it just, and I was kind of rewatching, there's a, a 1998 BBC documentary um, that came out just after this record came out. And, you know, at the end of it, they're just kind of saying, well, we're pretty comfortable in our own skin. We're comfortable that we have made this kind of grand sweeping melancholic record. And, you know, I think that is just them really being pretty true to themselves. Because I mean, the temptation to make a carbon copy of everything must go in 1998, in the context of how successful that record was in the United Kingdom and in Europe, must have been pretty strong.
1: Yeah. So
3: you know, you know, in many ways, this record is is has got a real kind of contrariness around about it because you know, everything must go, as I say, was was a huge success in the UK. Um, I think it won two Brit Awards, which is kind of the UK music industry's kind of annual annual kind of awards ceremony. Um, I think it won two, two of those in 1997. Uh, They were playing, you know, huge, huge arenas by, um, by the time 1997 came around. You know, so a lot of bands would have taken that as a reason to kind of do a big tree lap and just try and do the same thing over again. So, you know, the fact that they came back with a record which is kind of so embellished with that different instrumentations, those, those different textures, you know, the first song, you know, talks about in the beginning when we were women, winning, you know, it's really pretty brave in, in many respects, you know, so I'm kind of all for that. But, you know, I tend to be a somewhat kind of contrary person because alongside this, Lifeblood is one of my favorite Max albums too. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe I like being contrary just for the sake of it.
1: <laughs> you know, I and I read and I don't know if this came up in anything you've read about this record that The Everlasting was inspired by Blurs the Universal that Nikki wanted to write something grand in terms of a lyrical content, something something majestic and uh, was inspired by The Universal by Blur, which I don't know, Jay, if you're familiar with that song, but it's, you know, it's very atypical Blur from the early, not early, like mid-90s. It's a string-driven song as opposed to a Graham Coxon guitar riff, which you I think most people associate with Blur, but it's this very orchestral-sounding song. In terms of the things that, and I'm leading into somewhere with this, in terms of the things that don't work, I th- I feel like there's a couple songs where they reach to try to do something big, and they don't quite get there. The Everlasting is one of them. I, I-, I like the song, but they're t- I feel like they're trying to write this big grandiose opener, and I don't know if it's because of that like simplistic little drum beat that leads it in or what have you. But I don't feel like it kind of gets there as well as they would later on with big ideas. And and big, grandiose, sweeping orchestral parts. So, Jay, let me ask you, was there anything that, looking back now, you're like, "Mm, this doesn't quite work for me as well as it did, or never Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think the, the middle and really second half, I'll say second half of the record, still was a challenge then, still a challenge for me now. You know, I'm not working... Incredibly slow. I'm not a big fan of uh, SYMM. Black dog on my shoulder. I love the sentiment. I love the lyric, but musically it sounds like a Joni Mitchell song, and <laughs> not in a good way. Yeah. Um, so there's some stuff on here. When I when I hear them, you you know, you said you know them trying to do some different things. Those are the songs where you know, My Little Empire. I don't love where they're trying to do um, some different guitar sounds and different tones and different writing styles. Um, that don't quite connect with me. So, yeah, the second half of the record is, I, you know, I'll still listen to it, you know, to complete the record and, and the whole full experience, but I, I don't love the second half. Uh, I think the first half, half is incredibly strong, though.
1: Peter, what about you? Anything in revisiting this record that uh, either didn't work for you back yeah. then? Or...
3: So, you know, one thing that, that kind of strikes me is that Everything Must Go has 12 songs on it and I think it lasts for around 46 minutes. This album has 13 songs on it, so only one more than Everything Must Go, and it lasts for around 63 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, you can kind of definitely tell it's the 1990s. I think, I think we all, all kind of think the 90s was Anita, where people kind of stacked their albums with rejected B-sides, but, you know, that can kind of play out in the kind of longevity of songs, too. I think there's only one song in this record, which is under four minutes long. So that kind of struck me, um, but yeah this the, the second half of this record, I mean, individually I love every one of these songs. I can you know listen to them from from back to front and and you know, I really like all of them you know i I do kind of wonder if you know, kind of you have my little empire, you have I'm not working and you have born a girl three pretty austere songs, yeah, are, I like all three, but whether or not, you could kind of surgically alter this record and you could kind of import one of the B-sides and kick one of those songs off, you know, whether or not that would just kind of make that kind of middle to latter half a bit punchier. And, I mean, like Jay on on SYMM, you know, that song has got a lot of flack. You know, I think even when this record came out and it was getting glowing reviews, I think people were, were at best indifferent to, to that song. Didn't they catch and, some
1: flack because of the title because it's it's referencing a murder right
3: no it's referencing a a disaster oh disaster uh a, a soccer match in the uk in i think 1989 um uh, i'm not sure how many i think it was, it's it's probably the worst sporting related disaster in, in uk history and there was kind of big questions about the complicity of the police and and to the extent that the procedures that the police followed whether or not they ultimately cost lives you know i think in it in some ways i think it's still an issue in the united kingdom so i think it was just the kind of the very kind of controversial nature of of writing a song about such a subject and you know what goods are going to do ultimately so i think that's kind of where where some of of people's dislike of of that particular song comes from the Mannix, um, they're one of my favorite bands, but um, they've never kind of really blown me away with their album closers, you know? I really kind of love a kind of good, epic album closer. And, you know, with a couple of exceptions, they kind of rarely do that. Um, and this kind of falls into that category, I think.
1: That's an interesting yeah. uh, observation. I hadn't really thought about that.
2: I think you're right. Like, they kind of, they they start hot, I think most of their albums start really strong, but yeah, I can't think of an album that has a really great album closer.
1: Well, I
3: they do. Don't, love, they I, don't have a Beatles, but Elton Wiggs.
1: No, that's yeah, that's that's one of the ultimates. I I do like "Condemned to Rock and Roll" on the first record. Yeah. I think, I, but but after that, yeah, I I don't think. Uh, I don't even know what the closer is on
3: "Go for the Soul." It's Gold Against the Soul." The
1: title track. Called, is it Gold Against Soul"? Okay. See that that to me is one of my. I know Jay, you really like that record, but that's one that's on the bottom end of my list of. Well, I, I
2: liked it. In, I liked it in the '90s. I, right. I have done a recent yeah reassessment since uh, they've released probably what six more albums since then.
1: Right. But I, I and you mentioned about the B sides. Um, Socialist Serenade is a B side for this record, and um, yeah. that could I wish that was on the record as opposed to like you could take that, put it on the record, and pull off. You know, My Little Empire and Not Working, that's nine minutes right there of kind of similar territory. I'm Not Working is almost six minutes long. I mean, that's just an unnecessarily long <laughs> song. And and it, like you said, it, it's the same sort of territory that's being hit with, you know, My Little Empire, I'm Not Working, and Born a Girl. And I think out of those three songs, Born a Girl is probably the one that I like the best out of those three yeah i think I think the issue with this record that probably a lot of people have is you hit that number six seven eight nine area and you just it just gets really slow and if they maybe reshuffled the record like move nobody loved you up and trimmed a song or moved moved socialist serenade in there there's definitely uh definitely some issues in terms of pacing on the record that could be could be dealt with so this album actually you know I was thinking that for some reason that because if you tolerate this didn't hit in the US at all. I think everything must go in in terms of a design for life got like some airplay here. Even if it was just a little bit like on some like college rock. I was thinking this record didn't do as well, but this album has actually sold worldwide 5 million copies. To me is pretty amazing, quite honestly. I mean, that this record has sold 5 million copies is is kind of astounding considering the subject matter and the, and the sound of the record just in terms of it being so mellow and throughout much of it.
2: But remember, I mean, I I could be wrong, but my memory is that this was the most promoted record that I remember of, of them in the U S
1: that's true. So Peter, were you in the UK at this time?
3: Yeah, I was in the UK at this, this time. And, um, you know, this was a big deal in, in, the UK back in 98 I mean you know the fact that it went to number one you know okay you can you can get a record to number one in the United Kingdom if you've got a large and dedicated cult following you know most of our maiden albums make number one in the United Kingdom but you know they only kind of stay there for one week whereas right. I think this record was number one for three weeks so quite mm-hmm. clearly people were still going out and, and you know buying it in significant numbers even after all the diehards <sighs> right awesome-
2: is that based on um, I'm trying to get my head around this because I think this is a fat, fascinating band for Americans because you know a, a lyric: if you tolerate this your children will be next was that a, a single played on the radio a lot
3: that was a number one single
2: <laughs> like <No>. I'm tr- <laughs> Tim, <laughs> Tim imagine <laughs> that being played on the radio here heavy like to yeah. the point where it's popular it's mind boggling
1: it is it is totally mind boggling
0: she teaches you to be.
1: I mean, think about what this was up against. You're up against like "Freak on a Leash" by Korn, "The Dope Show" by Marilyn Manson, and like those are the singles that I remember being huge in like '98. Yeah, um, like v-
2: vaguely angsty music, but not really saying anything. I right. Mean, how, 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 I guess how odd was that at, at the time, or not? I mean, how did it yeah. fit in with what else I, was going on I don't on think it,
3: it was it was odd in, in 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 any way because I mean, two years earlier, you know, these guys had got a design for life to number two um and i think everything must go the title track i think probably made made the top five also so and you know it wasn't just the Manics. i think a lot of these alternative bands were um you know were' scoring kind of big hits in in that era i was i was very surprised to discover that oasis actually had a number one in the uk in early 1998 um off uh from be here now i kind of thought that record had died a death Two weeks after it came out, so you know, Alternative Rock uh, kind of sold, uh, you know, was was selling quite a bit. I think in, in the UK back in those days, and uh, you know, 1998 itself. If I took a look at the, the Wikipedia entry on this. I mean, it wasn't just this record. I mean, the second Garbage record was a number one in the UK. I think the Beastie Boys record that came out that year was was a number one. I think the Verve Urban Hymns, was was number one for five or six weeks. So yeah, it certainly didn't didn't strike me as as odd.
2: Well, I meant more from a um, just a lyrical content standpoint. Like all those artists you mentioned, I mean, that, those were all big here, and lyrically, they're just—I mean—they're nondescript kind of alternative rock yeah. material. Whereas yeah. this is.
3: Yeah.
2: It's yeah. it's kind of a. I
3: think a, a heavy lyric. No, that's that's true. I think Nicky Wire likes to say that he thinks that "Tolerate" is the only pro-war song to ever hit number one in the United Kingdom. <laughs> So I guess
2: there's something. <laughs> wow! Oh, this is why I love this band.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a uh, you know a band of even of contradictions. You know, they're constantly pushing an envelope that is always evolving. So for them,
2: and in, in the, in, we touched on this a little bit, but I just want to make the point that what makes this band so great is the catalog. And that they've continually put music out, you know, even through, oh, yeah. they've gone through as as low points as, as any band could could say, and they've stayed together and continue to at least put a record out every couple of years um, with the same three guys at this point, you know. So what that gives you is this catalog that you can now go back to where, you know, they're constantly evolving and trying to reinvent themselves and exploring new angles and really being artists, which is, there's not a lot of bands that you can say have done that. They've either broken up or they've gotten off the rails or the material's just not there. So I don't know. I think they're unique in that they are a pure, um, catalog band. You can really go in and, and dig into it and explore all the different parts and pieces and kind of compare them against each other. And it makes for fun, a uh, fun listen.
1: Yeah. I'm curious your experience having lived in both, the UK and then in the United States, I mean, you have to see a dramatic difference in radio and in terms of what is acceptable in terms of pop radio here versus, you know, this being a number, you know, producing a number one single on this album. Uh, but at the same time, the number two album that they knocked off was a pop band, Steps, right? That was. Yeah. And so, like, I, there's no way that a band of this style I mean there's there's not really anybody to compare them to in the United States I guess you know Rage Against the Machine is like a political band but they don't musically are not in the same ballpark I don't I, mean, I don't know how you would compare them to anybody in the US but there's there's no way that like in 1998 anybody's going to go up against Britney Spears and whoever the pop artists were of that year like it's just not going to happen
3: yeah, I'm not sure of one factor, and that really is the, the strength of the British music press, um, which I think is is just very different to to how it is here. It's different now in, in 2018 than it was in, in 1998. But, you know, the sway of publications like The Melody Maker, when it still existed, and The mu- Musical Express, which still exists in some shape or form, I think was pretty was pretty significant. And, you know, the UK also has, um, and still has, uh, you know, a pretty reasonable selection of kind of monthly glossies. And I seem to remember that that they were certainly on the cover of Q magazine, uh, which I think certainly claims to be the biggest music, se- biggest selling music magazine in the UK. And I'm pretty sure they were on the cover of, of all the others too. So I'm not quite sure if that's a characteristic in the UK and if, if that's kind of a feature and kind of propelling that kind of, that kind of music more into the mainstream.
1: Yeah, we don't have. I mean, there's Rolling Stone and Spin at this time, but there's no. They're not doing it the same way. Let's put it. I guess put it that way. It's just a different animal. You know, Rolling Stone is for legacy artists at this point.
2: And they were smaller magazines, but they were smaller. They didn't have any power. You know, like within yeah. niches, they could make bands, but there was no pop culture driving no. rock magazines other than Rolling Stone and Spin. You know.
1: Yeah, we're going long on this one. So let's let's talk about overall ratings on this record. Worthy album, better EP, or decent single? Jay?
2: It's a worthy album, absolutely. You know, it's a little slow. You gotta be in the mood for it. Maybe a gotta wait for a gray rainy day. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's another fascinating chapter in this band's history and and worth a listen
1: i agree with you and uh you know a few aside from a few changes to the running order maybe swapping in a b-side for a couple of album tracks that are a little repetitive the lyrical content is really interesting you know we didn't really get into it that much but i know you mentioned it a little bit jay but hearing being able to hear all of the lyrics the first time through and know what he's singing, for the most part, was a, almost a revelation, <laughs> to be quite honest, because that was part of the you know frustration fun of the early manix album was that you'd have to sit there with the lyric book booklet and just read through to figure out what he was yelling at me, because uh, right, <laughs> I couldn't quite figure out you know or, or what
2: what words he was pronouncing in... A, a, a completely uh untraditional way or unknown way well, to yeah. make them fit melodies you're like I what mean, he, what
1: he's still doing that on this record i mean he's the way yeah. he pronounces genuine on uh the everlasting i i'm not sure what he's what, what approach <laughs> he took there yeah. but it's it's not it's not anything i'm familiar with but you know i appreciate that i mean now that I've gotten a little older and I've heard more and more songwriters and singers and stuff like that, a lot of people mess around with yeah. pronunciations and lyrics and just, you know, it's an artistic but to, decision. But to your
2: point, the early records do it to a, to a level at which it, you cannot decipher what he's saying without reading the lyric book sometimes.
1: The, the early records. At, at
2: least Americans can't.
1: <laughs> right. The early records, especially the Holy Bible, are the great like litmus test as to whether you're going to like this band or not. Like if you put on the Holy Bible for someone who's never heard the band and they like instantly get it, then yep. they're going to be a lifelong fan of the band. But if they listen to it and they look at you within the first five seconds of yes, and they're like, what did he did you just drop the C word? <laughs> what is this song? <laughs> like it's uh, it's it's a great, you know, divider. In terms of uh, people are going to get it and not get it, and in the U.S. for the most part, people have not gotten it, whether they've even been exposed to it or not. Jay and I are on the on the weird end of that spectrum. of We heard it and we're like, "Yes, give us more. We'll go, we'll go to the Virgin Mega Store here in Columbus and buy all of your overpriced imports because we want to get every, our hands on everything." So, Peter, I'm going to assume based on your comments that you still consider this to be a worthy record.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, I I would certainly say it's probably my favourite of the first five Manix records. Yeah, I think it's quite telling that you know we were talking a bit about age earlier, and you know I think when these guys made this record, I think they were all about twenty nine, so they were just about to kind of hit thirty. Yeah. So you know, I think I think the fact it kind of has that kind of added maturity. There's kind of a lot of angst on those kind of early Manix records, but this seems like a just kind of much more mature version of it. Yep. So, um, you know, I can still listen to those those kind of early records, but I kind of feel this is something I can kind of, kind of delve into kind of more substantively than, say, Generation Terrorists, or, or Gold Against the Soul, for that matter. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, you know, you listen to Generation Terrorists, it's more of a visceral... Put you in a particular mindset for a, a brief moment of time and but it's uh not something I can relax with and and yeah. you know put on in some of the later stuff. Even though even the stuff that's a little bit louder, but just some of the later stuff, whether it's even futurology, which I know was considered like sort of a throwback, but that's a pretty melodic record and there's quite a bit that's slower and quieter compared to the earlier records. So I'm curious. I know, you know, before the show, very briefly, we discussed, they have a new album coming out. Uh, I believe it's in April. It's called resistance is futile. I just thought that was funny because that's such a sci-fi, a dystopian, uh, phrase. I think that, uh, it's actually used in Battlestar Galactica and the reboot show that came out 10 years ago. So, uh, I don't know where they got that from, but it made me smile a little bit because I was like, oh yeah, that's totally a Mannix mm. album title or song title. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I'm curious to hear what that record's going to sound like. I've already I've heard the single. I know you haven't, so I won't give anything away, but it sounds like the Mannix. I'll just say that. Jay, have you heard it?
2: No, I haven't heard it yet. Where did you hear it?
1: Uh, there was a, let's say, less than legal rip of it on YouTube. Oh, uh, okay. Somebody they had it had gotten previewed on like a, a british like a bbc show and somebody had like ripped it straight from off of the bbc and put it onto a youtube it might have been already taken down but if you go on there you might be able to find it
3: i think there's an official video for it now
1: well it's they, it's they territorial know. like oh. i i haven't been able to watch it cuz it's only for the uk
2: yeah the, the it's ridiculous that that's still going on at this day and age Ten years ago, I was like, oh, "Okay, this is the way it is." But now it's like, "Come on,
1: come on, we're all humans."
2: <laughs> well, it's like the internet can make it's available. You've seen it. Like, why are you blocking it? Right. Come on. Yeah. And I
3: isn't, can... isn't the isn't the single also about the the wonders of internationalism? Ironically.
2: Yeah. There you go.
1: Probably. Um, yeah. Supposedly, I, I read a little bit. Uh, Nikki says that articulating what you're against is easy, but articulating what you're for is difficult. So he wanted mm. to write a record about what he's actually for. So, and, and positivity in terms of whatever his interpretation of that is. I'm curious to what this is going to sound like, because that sounds like a, again, they're taking on this like uh, challenge, which is what I appreciate about this band is that they're, uh, you know, they're willing to write songs for, um, the Wales national team one, one year and then (laughs) (laughs) write a song about international relations the next. So there you go, Peter, thank you for joining us for this episode. This was a lot of fun.
3: No pleasure. Thanks for having me guys.
1: I need to remind everybody you can join us at Patreon. Like Peter, become a patron for a, a buck a month, get access to bonus content, get access to our polls, get access to what shows are coming up, and can uh, leave comments that we'll talk about on the air. And, of course, if you like what you heard, leave us some positive feedback at iTunes. That's it. So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout.com. And become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.